This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today, we are doing Idiocracy, and I will kick us off. Idiocracy came out in 2006. It was directed by Mike Judge, the guy who did Office Space, King of the Hill, and Beavis and Butthead. Like Demolition Man, the film we did last week, it features two people born in the 20th century who awaken at a later date. But in Demolition Man, the people who are frozen are the exceptionally violent. Here, the people who are frozen have been selected on the basis that they are very average people who have no social ties. No one will miss them if the experiment goes wrong. And boy, does it go wrong. Our two main characters think they will wake up a year later, but instead spend 500 years in their boxes. When they finally awaken, our very average characters find that they are much smarter than everyone they meet. Over the past 500 years, stupid people have reproduced in very large numbers, while smart people have hemmed and hawed about having children. Over time, this has dumbed down the population, creating a situation in which no one has basic reasoning skills. They've even begun watering the crops with sports drinks, on the basis that these sports drinks contain electrolytes, and electrolytes are what plants crave. Little do they know these sports drinks are full of salts, and by pouring them all over the fields, they have effectively salted the earth. The infrastructure is falling apart, roads end abruptly, medical doctors rely on computers to successfully diagnose people. But even as these problems are slowly coming to a head, everyone remains distracted by screens, as ever stupider forms of mass entertainment are invented. These forms of entertainment blend elements from myriad forms of naughty's low culture. We see the clear influence of demolition derbies, professional wrestling, and America's funniest home videos. As long as the entertainment and the fast food flow, the people don't notice that basic social systems are coming apart at the seams. Much of the planet has degenerated into slums and massive mountains of garbage, and no one does anything about any of it. Eventually, however, the President of the United States becomes aware that our main character is very smart and entrusts him with solving all the world's problems. Very quickly, our main character figures out what's wrong with the food supply. Plants need water, not sports drinks. But convincing the stupid people that this is indeed the case proves very difficult. Eventually, he is forced to claim that he can speak with plants, and they've told him they want water. But when they start implementing the plan, the company that makes the sports drinks goes bankrupt, and this creates an enormous amount of unemployment. When the economy becomes dependent on sectors that waste enormous amounts of social resources, we get a disturbing paradox. Fixing actual long-term social problems conflicts with the near-term needs of the economy. I am reminded here of the healthcare sector in the United States, which is over 17% of GDP and grows continuously in size. Most developed states spend only 10% of GDP on healthcare, and many of these states have much lower per capita GDP than the United States. But if you were to redesign the healthcare system overnight and cut healthcare spending to 10% of GDP, this would leave 7% of the U.S. economy totally unaccounted for. The effect of this would be to produce an enormous economic disturbance, even if the healthcare system itself became markedly better. Because no one is willing to absorb these adjustment costs, the healthcare system is permitted to go on wasting enormous amounts of money. 7% of U.S. GDP is in excess of $1.6 trillion per year. 
even if we cut healthcare spending more modestly to something like 14% of GDP, this would leave almost $700 billion unaccounted for, an amount very nearly equivalent to the budget of the Defense Department. We struggle to cut defense spending because of concerns about jobs, even though we only spend about 3% of GDP on defense. So you can imagine the political weight the healthcare sector carries. It absolutely dwarfs all the military contractors. But hey, it's the healthcare sector. It's what patients crave. This film is seductive. The idea that the real problem is that everyone is stupid is awfully tempting, especially for people like me, a former gifted kid with a fancy degree. But I think the film engages in two key conflations that taken together have a profoundly misleading effect. First, the film conflates instrumental and substantive reason. It conflates the capacity to reason about means with the capacity to reason about ends. The people in this film are stupid in the sense that they can't reason instrumentally. They know they are hungry and they need to get the plants to grow, but they are too stupid to figure out how to solve that problem. They agree on what the problem is. They just lack the cognitive resources to solve it. Yet at the same time, it's also suggested that these people are also stupid about ends. They are easily distracted by their body's physical desires. They get caught up in their vices, in gluttony, greed, and lust. These vices make them susceptible to mass entertainment. In real life, these two kinds of reason frequently do not travel together. There are many people who are clever about means, but stupid about ends. Take Pete Buttigieg, for instance. He was, by all accounts, a very good McKinsey consultant, able to help companies maximize their profits when called upon to do so. He has also found a strategy for becoming prominent in national politics that has also been very instrumentally effective. He joined the military instrumentally so that he could use his experience to launch a political career. He leverages his identity as a gay man very effectively. He's very good at using what he has to go where he wants to go. He's a clever person on an instrumental level. But what does Pete Buttigieg do when he is in power? He has no idea what matters, what political power is for. He is like a dog chasing the mailman. He's very good at chasing, and given time, he may very well catch the mailman. But what on earth will he do with him once he gets hold of him? Pete Buttigieg hasn't thought that through because he has no sense of what matters in life. And that is why even though Pete Buttigieg is clever, there is also something profoundly stupid about him. I have no doubt that he could put up a very high IQ score, but in a future society that's falling to pieces, I absolutely expect to see men like Pete Buttigieg in prominent roles. You won't find them in idiocracy, where this specific kind of moral spiritual stupidity is treated as synonymous with other forms of stupidity. You can also find many people who are, in an instrumental sense, deeply stupid, who are nonetheless deeply committed to doing good and who do exercise a great deal of self-restraint, people who work hard and regularly contribute their time and energy to their local communities. Many of these people become obsessed with leading an ethical lifestyle. They think that if they live more sustainably, they can stop climate change. They think that if they consume ethically, they can help the good businesses outcompete the bad businesses. They think you can create an ethical capitalism if you are sufficiently discerning about your purchases. They think the real problem is not capitalism or big business as such, but that their peers are lazy and unwilling to do their homework on which companies and celebrities are good and which ones are bad. 
You're not meant to say anything bad about this sort of person because this sort of person's heart is in the right place. But this kind of person is not just unable to accomplish very much. They actively get in the way of meaningful solutions by constantly turning every social problem into a question of individual moral commitment. If Pete Buttigieg is instrumentally clever but substantively dumb, this sort of person is substantively clever but instrumentally incredibly stupid. A wise person grasps both means and ends. IQ does not measure wisdom. It does not capture this. And this is the second conflation of all kinds of intelligence with IQ. Now, this is not to say that IQ is absolutely completely useless. When someone has a very low IQ, that does reliably indicate that they are profoundly bad at certain tasks that are important for instrumental reason. But when someone has a high IQ, that doesn't tell you as much about them as you might think. Yes, you can show that people with higher IQs make more money on average, but Pete Buttigieg makes a lot of money and has a high IQ, and yet it is very obvious whenever you listen to him talk that he is, in a very important sense, a deeply stupid person. What is especially aggravating about Pete Buttigieg is that he reveals that many of our friends and family members share in his stupidity. When they listen to him talk, they are unable to grasp the degree to which he fails to be a fully realized human being. Realizing that people we know, that people we respect, cannot tell the difference between Pete Buttigieg and a wise person is deeply unsettling. This is what I find unsatisfying about the worldview that idiocracy encourages me to have, the worldview that I did have when I was a small child, stuck in primary school waiting for the other kids to learn to read. It misses that the person who is clever, but who follows incentives wherever they lead, who makes themselves into a useful tool of the market, without comprehending the degree to which this involves spiritual self-mutilation, this person, it, it can't capture it. It can't find this person. But this is the person who is now manufactured on a mass scale. This kind of person is everywhere in our society. They're more competitive than the wise. They're better adapted to the actual existing institutions. It's not that the low IQ person is more competitive than the high IQ person. It is that one-sided, undialectical cleverness is more competitive than the ways of thinking that in former ages would have been thought to advance the dialectic, to contribute to modernity, or some such thing. In ancient Greece, the slave or hired hand who managed your farm for you while you created art was called an epitropos. It was understood that this epitropos was just a manager, just a person with instrumental skills. You would not go to your epitropos for wisdom. That belonged to the philosophers, the sophists, or the priests. Your epitropos was just there to free up your mind, to allow you to think about other things apart from business and agriculture. Today, we cannot tell the difference between the epitropos and the philosopher. We're unable to create a society where everyone is free to make art. And so we insist that the managers are good, that Pete Buttigieg is complete, that he is a fully realized human being. Because it is much easier to imagine a society in which everyone is a manager, in which businesses are cooperatively managed, than it is to imagine a society where everyone can do art and philosophy. Your ordinary middle-class family cannot create a Plato or a Phidias, but they can create a Buttigieg. And because it cannot be admitted that this in any way falls short, the manager must be raised up and made a ruler, and the whole society must be given over to their ilk and to the capitalist imperatives which they serve. Idiocracy is seductive because it is a film that suggests that the real problem is that ordinary people are too stupid to listen to their managers. But the managers are spiritually incomplete, 
and there are precious few people left who can tell the difference between cleverness and true wisdom. Mike Judge seems to grasp this better in Office Space, a film that relentlessly targets the managers. That film is, I think, much better than Idiocracy. But let's hear what Nina thinks. Yes, I agree with that. I was going to make the same point, uh, re-Office Space, which is a fantastic film about the sort of iniquity of working in office jobs, but also precisely, as you say, about the the role of managers. And it's it's actually interesting, you know, precursor to, I guess it comes out before The Office, the the TV show or whatever. I don't know. There's a, there's a kind of spate of, of, of shows and, and films that deal with these sorts of uh, mundane horror, um, you might want to say, you know, and then the kind of social dynamics of, of labour and the kind of uh, internal pressures. Uh, I think it's like Jennifer Aniston's character in Office Space is this fantastic sort of resistor, you know, when they ask her to wear a certain number of pieces of flair, uh, more than than what is she, more than what she has to wear. And she just sort of questions this overconform overconformism. Uh anyway, there's you know, it is a much better better film than this one. I think, you know, it's um I mean idiocracy is definitely worth watching. I mean it is an interesting idea as a kind of speculative, dystopian um you know, play. Um it's not a very good film as a as a film in many ways. It's a little bit sort of disjointed and um a bit one note, like it, it didn't need to be a film, perhaps it's more like a kind of sketch almost, or even a, a 30 minute, you know, episode, or, you know, you can imagine like one of those Simpsons episodes set in the future. And I think sometimes people who make short um, episode, episodic material often struggle to make long films. Like you see this, I mean, the Simpsons film isn't, isn't bad actually, but um you know, there's a really strong case of this. I don't know if you ever watched the British TV series League of Gentlemen. Very dark, very fa- fantastic, uh, very, very dark comedy set in the north of England. Um, anyways, it's just absolutely brutal. I highly recommend it. It's, you know, I think Britain, one of, the, one of the only good things that Britain has done in the last sort of few decades is produce some incredible comedy, um, in the, especially in the sort of, you know, perhaps it well all over all over since since the forties maybe to the two thousands. Anyway, so some fast, fantastic stuff. But uh, they tried to make a full length feature film, and it was just uh, abject failure. Like when I went to the cinema to see it, because I'm such a fan of the series, there were literally three people there because it was already sort of panned as this kind of absolute failure, um, and it just couldn't hold it together. Anyway, so this is a kind of you know occasional problem that people have, although he does overcome it in office space for sure. I think there are parallels here, obviously, like you say, with Demolition Man, with the, you know, imagining people from the past and the future. Um, also with uh, Wally, the animation, um, because of the, um, I suppose this sort of idea of degeneration of, of humanity into pure comfort or pure um, consumption, really. You know, and I think it's in that film you have these kind of humans who are sort of floating in chairs, just sort of, you know, their bones sort of shrink and they just drink soft drinks. And it's this kind of um, <laughs> sort of 
dysgenic uh, degeneracy, you know, and it, there's something kind of quite reactionary about this film, you have to say. I mean, the depiction of the the people in the film is really this kind of multicultural, you know, everyone's sort of a bit of a mulatto. It's like very mixed, <laughs> like ethnicity. Um, you could read this film uh, as a really quite reactionary <laughs> depiction of uh, of an image of, of America. Um, it it has this kind of snobbery about it. Um, you can totally imagine Mike Judge and, and others, and it reminds me of the, almost like of the new atheists who are around this period as well and this desire to create this sort of category of people who are like smarter than everyone else and, you know, this kind of fantasy, like you say, that, oh, it's the smart people you can see through the horror of consumerism. And, you know, and I definitely had moments of that, and, you know, as a teenager, like it's quite a teenage pose, right? You're like, I'm the one who can see through all of this, you know, nonsense. And look at all these people like buying their stupid Starbucks and going to Gap or whatever, you know, and it's it's a little bit like that. Like it's kind of this sort of slightly adolescent critique. Um, and yeah, with this dimension of kind of snobbery and, you know, dismissiveness. Um, I agree about your sort of separation of means end rationality and the kind of problem of IQ and, and so on. Um, and I think... Yeah, but there there is a kind of, I mean, let's take it seriously for a moment. I mean, let's say that there is a kind of general uh, stupefying, you know, and, and, and we know even from reading the ancient Greeks that they were already complaining about the young people, you know, not working as hard and not being as serious and being frivolous. You know, so this is a kind of permanent human problem where you're sort of constantly thinking, that your age or the people just behind you are like even more stupid than they were before, you know, and that, that there is this kind of uh, becoming stupider of humanity. This is a long held <laughs> suspicion. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think that's, that's true. I mean, we're the interesting, I suppose, reality of some of what's being proposed in this film is, is less, I would say a kind of dysgenic IQ shredding thing but rather the sort of degeneration of cities which is quite well depicted in the in the film you know the kind of overloading of cities with rubbish and you know and when we know that globally there are parts of the world that are just basically polluted with rubbish often from the west being transported elsewhere to poorer countries and you know so this idea of slums and this this kind of environmental catastrophe is you know, prescient or, you know, it has, has a point. Um, yeah, I I think that the two main characters, you know, the, the, the soldier and the prostitute, if you like, um, you know, perfectly well drawn. They're sort of, yeah, average human beings trying to deal with a world that's kind of uh, fallen to pieces and, and given over to its baser instincts um, precisely. And this jackass, celebration of jackass and this, you know, violent. Uh, and, and many of these things, of course, were very, as you say, very popular at the time that Mike, Jed, Ju Mike Judge made this film. Um, he made, he turns Starbucks into uh, brothels, you know, so there's some kind of degeneration of coffee houses into, or coffee shops into sort of knocking shops. I'm not really sure. Everything is covered in adverts, um, you know, that everything is kind of bought and sold. Everything is sort of incorporatized um it's yeah it it's i don't know it, it has its limits i mean it, it does raise this kind of question about well as you already raised like who should govern you know is it 
is it the wise? Is it the clever who are not the wise? You know, and the clever in the sense of, you know, bureaucrats. Um, They leave unanswered various questions about the future of the human race. I mean, the, the two normal but contextually smarter people do have children together um but then you're sort of left with this question well who are they going to to breed with (laughs) as it were um and there are these sort of slightly unpleasant you know just like with the kind of you know the sort of ethnically uh muddy depiction of future humanity you do have these kind of slightly darker questions about breeding and um what you know, might happen after the film ends, if you if you see what I mean, like who is going to to have children. And, you know, I, I think we are obviously globally suffering at, at the moment from a demographic collapse. You know, this is something that people talk about a lot. There is a clear correlation between education and having fewer children. Um, there's a clear correlation between liberal societies and having fewer children. Um, but is as far as I understand it, and I've been to a couple of events and read a bit around this, though it's not one of my, I guess, main issues, but is that even in places that maintaining a relatively high birth rate, like, you know, parts of sub-Saharan Africa and so on, the, the birth rate even there is declining. Like there is a global decline. Like it's not, you know, it's almost like humanity has reached capacity, you know, in, in vis-a-vis its environment. I think we've discussed this a bit before, but, you know, and and so you could you kind of do have the opportunity to pose various questions. You know, you, you sometimes get these hand-wringing liberal arguments, the kind that you would get from precisely these good people, these people who are like trying to be good and conserve the environment and, and think that everything is an individual moral decision sort of hand-wringing over whether they should have children. You know, you often see these articles. They're obviously, they're often published in the New York Times or the New Yorker or, you know. Um, and there's a sort of implicit sense that maybe um, that, uh, that sort of white Western people in particular shouldn't have children. You know, this is, this is slightly morally dubious, <laughs> we might say, as well. Um, you know, why why are we encouraging various people not to have children uh, and others perhaps to have children? It should be a kind of, you know, open for everybody, you know, whoever wants to have children. It shouldn't be kind of, um, I don't know, uh, restricted or Im- implied restriction on particular groups. Um, so, you know, at the same time, obviously, we've, we, we discussed sort of immigration last week. This idea that immigration is being used to sort of prop up aging populations in terms of providing services that are needed for uh, populations that are growing older, various forms of care and and services and so on. Um, But I wonder if there is just a crisis, which is not really addressed in this film either, nor should it be. I mean, it's a kind of, you know, it's a fairly lightweight comedy, really, in a way which is really this sort of crisis of of meaning, you know, a kind of global crisis of of meaning, which is perhaps to do with the reasons why people may not have children at all. You know, if if there seems to be no purpose, no higher meaning, you know, if there's no sort of religious uh, value or moral value, no social value, everything is simply an individual decision, um, it, it seems clear that 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 doesn't really provide great sort of you know incentive really to to reproduce. Whereas if you think that your 
you have a duty, let's say, to 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 multi- multiply and to to engage in the worship of God in this way, you could see that that would be a much more encouraging <laughs> way of seeing uh, human reproduction um, than the one we currently have, which is sort of reduces it to a kind of choice. And I think we can see the really dark side of that in the kind of accessorization of children, you know, the, the idea that you can basically buy children through surrogacy and deprive them of of one or more parents and, and you know, and, and to kind of totally evacuate any sort of normative or natural relation between children and parents, which I, I think conjure up all kinds of psychoanalytic problems um, and social problems and, and, and so on. But again, the, because the market has, of course, like, invaded uh, you know wombs and eggs and sperm and everything there is there's in a way no reason not to but at the same time when everything becomes no reason not to the implication is is also there's no reason to either and I think this is this is where we're at in a way in terms of um carrying on as a a species and uh, as far as I understand it the only groups that are in any way above replacement are very extremely religious communities, you know, which always have extremely high birth rates. And we might say that there are huge problems there as well, possibly. Um, and I think maybe we discussed a long time ago, the Mormons or groups like this, the Amish. Um, I think some of them are sort of, you have some of these religious communities not too far away from you. Is that right? Yeah, there's quite a lot of uh, Pennsylvania Dutch in the Midwest, uh, some in Indiana, some in Ohio, a lot in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, you know, that's, but they, those are the only ones, right? Like the, these are the only communities that are seemingly to, to be growing. Um, so, and I, I you know, I, I don't know enough about kind of IQ and inheritance, but it, it seems like it's, you know, you do occasionally get like very clever people born in very humble circumstances, right? So, IQ does seem sort of slightly random in some way. Like you say, it's not necessarily the best measure of, of anything in particular. It clearly doesn't tell you anything about whether someone's a good person or not, right? Like we, we wouldn't say that someone with a high IQ is a morally better person, for example. Um, often they're probably not, to be honest. <laughs> they're probably able to um, abstract more from, you know, people, I don't know, people like Oppenheimer or something, you know, extremely clever people who can understand systems and think technically and scientifically may not also be the best at thinking morally, you know, because they're sort of not immediately confronted with the reality of a sort of social thickness and a kind of social responsibility, but rather they're pursuing knowledge for its own sake, which may actually have really counterproductive um, consequences for humanity. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting attempt, this film let's say but i as as part of our sort of minor dystopian series that we're doing i think it is an important one to to watch i mean we've already discussed in the past brazil i think which is probably also a much better film about bureaucracy i was thinking recently that yeah that if if this is partly a critique of 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 of, of well you know or raises the question of managerialism and politics it's really brazil that takes that to a kind of higher level like a kind of kafka-esque level of of what a what a what an incompetent but bureaucratic world looks like and you know we live in that world really i think brazil is is more accurate um on that level you know like infrastructure is 
crumbling. You know, I spend quite a lot of time on trains in Britain and they are really in deep, deep trouble. You know, every journey now is just like incredibly unpleasant, like not enough carriages, delays, you know, overcrowding, things are broken. It's very expensive. You know, it's, it's really sad and really depressing. And there seems to be absolutely no reason for that. Um, other than that, this is what privatization does. This kind of endless franchising out of every tiny part of the railway means that it's impossible for the thing to work as a whole. There's no one who's responsible, but there's also no one who has any pride in it. You can never really get an answer from anyone. There are rarely any conductors, but those who are there like, are checking your tickets to see if you've made a mistake in order to fine you. And that's not great for their job either. That's not a very pleasant thing to have to do, to have these kind of abrasive interactions so yeah i i think this yeah we we have uh inefficient and bloated bureaucracies crumbling infrastructure i mean especially in britain because unfortunately if you're like the pioneer of things like we you know we had the first underground in the world but we're basically still using the same underground that was like built for 10 people and now there's 10 million or we don't even know how many people live in London. Do you know what I mean? Like these, these systems, these structures are not like, not fit for purpose uh, at all. And the fact that they're still working at all, maybe is a miracle. Um, yeah. And, and people, people do forget how to, to do things, you know, de-skilling is a real part of, and an inevitable depressing part of various shifts in technology automation um and so on and 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 yeah i i think that you're right to absolutely draw attention to these different kinds of cleverness intelligence there's also cunning i was thinking about cunning recently you know some of the people some of the people in the film are, are okay stupid but they are cunning you know like they can get what they want or they they get money somehow you know do you know what i mean they're sort of sneaky and and you know in in terms of fulfilling their desires and you know like if they want to just stuff their face and and so on so that yes there's a kind of trickery and cunning that is also a kind of intelligence um it it might not be one that we particularly want to celebrate because it generally involves taking advantage of people and you know, if everybody does that in a Kantian way, then you have a very, very low trust society indeed. Uh, you have a very paranoid society and you have a very suspicious society. Uh, and I think this is one of the problems that we have as well, uh, is a increasing distrust, really, or even incomprehension and, you know, lack of communication between different parts of our society. You know, they, I, we, we're having... I would say quite a lot of tensions between different groups uh, in a way that was more in the background before, like maybe a kind of a sort of, you know, uh, how would I put it? Like a um, an, an unsteady but persistent mutual toleration has now become in some ways more of a an objective antagonism and i think obviously we saw this recently in dublin uh with the the riots uh following the stabbing of a of a some children and, and adults at, outside of school uh by by somebody who was um who was a migrant in dublin 
Um, you know, we've seen this, these tensions around Israel-Palestine demonstra- uh, demonstrations. I mean, the, the pro-Palestinian demonstrations, I should say. Um, I happened to be caught in a traffic jam last night coming back from, from town. And something I'd never seen before, there was an Albanian Independence Day parade, uh, which it was very bizarre. And they kind of closed, the police closed the road and there were all these men like just hollering at these cars that had huge Albanian flags. And it was very surreal. And it's, you know, but there's now such a large community of Albanians in Britain or in London that this is a thing, right? That there are just these groups you know, understandably celebrating their own national identity, but in London, you know, and and I think you just increasingly have these perhaps (laughs) non-overlapping groups. Um, But maybe let's, let's, let's return to this question of cunning as a form of intelligence and see what Benjamin has to say. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, On the Albanian point, before I forget it, uh, yeah, I think that London demographically looks a lot more like the United States. And so you get political forms in London that are very American. And that's in large part why movements that get going in London have such a difficult time competing in British politics more broadly, because Britain as a whole is not like London demographically or in terms of the representative politics that London gives rise to. Those American imported forms that are often, I think, also a consequence of the deep interaction between New York and London as cities. Uh, None of that scales in the UK. And so there's a perpetual confusion on the part of the Londoner why you can't scale this. And it's because London is much more different from the rest of the UK than New York is from the rest of the United States. On this question of cunning, I think this is a good point. So Cunning is something that we pick on as a kind of virtualist intelligence, Mm -hmm. but it takes cunning to sell cleverness as wisdom. And so if cunning is married (laughs) with a cleverness, which can hide it behind a cloak of this is in accordance with social norms and it's backed by institutions, then cunning can become acceptable. And the kind of white collar criminal is the one who is married cunning to cleverness in a way that disguises the social ill of it so that it can no longer be pathologized straightforwardly as, you know, this is the criminal who's ripping you off. This is the scammer who's ripping you off. The whole healthcare sector is, in a sense, a great big scam in the United States mm-hmm. in that it has. we have managed to talk ourselves into the idea that if we change this system in a way that would save, you know, three or four or five or seven percent of GDP, uh, if we did that, that we would somehow get much worse healthcare outcomes, that somehow there would be terribly long queues for everything and lots of people would die prematurely. And you can see in the statistics that many states that have much cheaper healthcare systems achieve life expectancies that are longer than the United States, outcomes for many different diseases and conditions that are better. But none of that matters. People are convinced, convinced that if you slashed all of this expenditure, that there would have to be something terrible that would happen. And so, in a sense, that sector has perpetrated a a cunning plan to rip the entire country off. And so then you come to a country like the UK, the UK, which spends all of 10 percent of GDP on healthcare and only 2 percent of GDP on defense. So in theory, there should be 8 percent of GDP left over to do something useful with it. But this is a country that nonetheless can't do anything useful with that extra 8 percent of GDP and is, in fact, underperforming the United States in terms of its infrastructure, in terms of its productivity. What is the UK wasting that 8% of GDP on? Where is it going? I I think that 
that is in some ways even more horrifying than the waste <laughs> in the United States, which is straightforward and explicable and easy to understand. The waste in the UK is very confusing. And to the point where I think this question of what's wrong with British productivity has become this great mystery of political economy with macroeconomists fascinated by it. UK is now a weird country with a strange problem like Japan mm. that nobody can really nail down or precisely define. There's something deeply strange about that. Uh, but it can't be because the UK has something like the NHS because the NHS saves money compared to the American healthcare system. The British you know, military is cheap and efficient compared to the American military. So it's got to be something else in the UK. But because there's so much English language discourse about politics, the British discussion is constantly influenced by the American discussion. And British people are constantly convinced that somehow the NHS must be wasting money. When compared to what is wasted by the American healthcare system, it's not at all possible for the NHS to waste serious money in the way in which American healthcare providers and insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies squander enormous, enormous piles of money you know, on jobs that don't need to exist, that shouldn't exist, or to the point where in the States, you know, anytime you go out for a drive, you just see be a nurse license plates on people's cars all over the place because there's a proliferation of you know, non-doctor, you know, healthcare uh, adjacent uh, workers who perform you know, jobs that in the UK don't exist or don't need to exist. It's enormous proliferation of of healthcare jobs because there's always more money flowing through these institutions and always a constant look for additional excuses to bill. Uh, one thing that stood out to me just recently is the transformation of, of chiropract, uh, chiropract, eh, chiropractors in the United States. It used to be that if you went to a chiropractor, you're in and out in five minutes. You know, they give you an adjustment and send you off to work, right? And a chiropractor is there to help someone who is a manual worker who lays brick, who can't afford to miss a bunch of days of work because they've thrown out their back. So the chiropractor does something to get the back back into shape so that they don't have to take a bunch of time off of work so that their family doesn't miss paychecks, doesn't go broke. And that's the role of the chiropractor. It's a very blue collar kind of medical work. But nowadays, the chiropractors want to be taken seriously as medical doctors, and they want to convince the people who come in to take part in a whole wellness regimen that's supposed to reconstruct their back over time. But this requires that they come in over and over and over again, and that they uh, each time they come in, pay enormous bills as part of this long-term plan to, to sort out the back. Now, that kind of medical care can't even serve the person that the chiropractor previously served, who can't afford that kind of money, who could never convince their insurance company to pay for something like that, uh, who actually just needs an adjustment. But now when this person goes looking for an adjustment, every chiropractor they go to see tries to get them on this big long-term wellness plan. And the chiropractor thinks this is enlightened compared to the barbaric practice of just you know giving people adjustments in five minutes and throwing them back into their jobs. And in a sense, the chiropractor is not entirely wrong to say that. Nonetheless, the consequence of this is enormous waste and a system that no longer actually serves the person it was originally created to serve. And now you just have... Uh, you know, th this constant attempt by these chiropractors to ream enormous amounts of money. But if you look at how much money they make, you know, if you bring people in 20 bucks a person for five minute adjustments and an hour's time, you've got a hundred bucks. If you charge people a hundred bucks for the hour long session, which is then supposed to be part of an infinite session, the number of people that you actually are going to help is much, 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 much smaller. And the amount of money you make won't be that much bigger. Yes, you'll make more money per person you see, 
But when you add up all of those people, it doesn't actually result in the chiropractor necessarily doing that much better financially even. So it's not even that good a deal for the chiropractor. Nonetheless, the chiropractors want to be taken seriously as medical doctors, and they don't like this idea of just throwing people out into the street with these adjustments. So they've talked themselves into uh, turning their profession into something which just doesn't serve a purpose except for very, very rich people. The absolute opposite of what it used to do. And they think of this as a progressive development, mm. which you know, quintessential example of how the American healthcare system invents expensive bullshit that nobody needs or wants uh, that doesn't serve a purpose. But you can talk people into it. You can talk all these rich people into the idea that their backs could be a little bit better than they are. Everybody's back as they get older doesn't feel as good as it used to feel. Maybe everybody needs to participate in an infinite series of chiropractic, <laughs> chiropractor sessions. You, know, you could talk people into it, but it's an enormous waste of money. And people go, well, people are agreeing to pay for it. You know, if you agree to pay Wilt Chamberlain you know, money, you know, the old Robert Nozick argument, you agreed to give Wilt Chamberlain all the money. You all paid your ticket to go see him play. So it's okay that he ends up with all the money. If you think about transactions in terms of did people agree to them without any other kind of, of thinking about mm -hmm. whether they make any sense, you know, then you can rationalize all of this as not a waste. But of course, it's a waste. It's a waste of more than a trillion dollars every year. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's really the, the, the way in which cunning is turned into an arm of the bureaucracy is to launder it through an institutional apparatus, which makes it look like cleverness. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think there's a close link there, obviously, with, with corruption um, as well. And, uh, you know, thinking about figures like Boris Johnson, who had this kind of patina of learning, you know, like he was sort of someone that people felt was clever, even if he wasn't particularly, because he could sort of vaguely remember some sort of Latin lines or whatever. You know, it's this, it's this kind of illusion of somebody who possesses something that you don't have and therefore... You should give them power. Yeah, it's a huckster energy. Now, Pete <laughs> Buttigieg isn't, isn't precisely that. I do think it is probably genuinely the case that McKinsey does often save companies money and does create efficiency, but not for any substantive purpose that is actually valuable to ordinary human beings. Yeah. And I, so I think, you know, there's so, there's so much corruption in the British elites and the whole system. And, you know, we saw this in COVID in terms of who got the contracts. It was basically just all of the Tories' friends uh, and, you know, no one could do anything about it because it was a vaguely emergency situation. Um, it's interesting because I went to this high security men's prison recently. Um, I, it's an experimental prison in, um, in Grendon, um, which is sort of fairly near Birmingham. And uh, this was, when did I do this? This was, uh, I think, um, kind of last, yeah, only only last week, right? So we haven't talked about it, I think, right? No, I don't think we have. Yeah, so so it's very, very interesting. I, they, they have a kind of, because it's an experimental prison, it's the only one of its kind. I mean, so it's a, very, it's a normal high security prison in many ways, and, and the men are in for serious crimes, like the worst, it's a Category B prison, it's like, it's, you know, the really bad crimes that, you, that a lot of people don't get out for life or they're in for 25 years or whatever. Kinds of crimes we wouldn't really want to even name or to discuss at any length. Yeah, yeah. But you, you know what sort of crimes I mean. And, and you know, I was invited there as, as part of this project they have with this artist in residence who does art with some of the um, prisoners. And you can only be in this prison as a prisoner if you've agreed 
that they to take responsibility for your crime. So it's very interesting. It's got this kind of uh, strange, um, almost religious dimension to it in a certain sense. Although the 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 what it has that makes it different to the other prisons is this psychotherapy. So it's it has art therapy and psychotherapy, and it has this artist in residence, and it's tied with this, this uh, gallery icon gallery in Birmingham. And the men um, read various books and they were working on a various a project around masculinity. So a lot of the artwork they were making was about toxic masculinity, right? And their own masculinity. Uh, very interesting. And they invited me in to, to talk about my book because they've been reading my book in prison, which is really like one of the most, um, I don't know, gratifying things about the whole thing. Like, you know, the fact that men in prison are reading my book, men who've really done sort of terrible things and are trying to think about the sorts of things that I discuss in the book to do with forgiveness and reconciliation and, and moral responsibility and what masculinity means. So I had a, a discussion in front of the other prisoners with, with one of the prisoners um, who is in for armed robbery, he told me, um, which actually gives you relatively high status because uh, there's a lot of high, it's, it's all about a kind of hierarchy in prison um but you know because he didn't do anything involving children and you know armed robbery is like you know it, i don't know whatever reason and he was someone i would say who exhibited a great deal of charm and charisma and cunning in a certain way but to go back the reason i'm mentioning all this is apart from the fact that it was a fascinating and unusual thing to do and i i don't know how many people get a chance to go to a high security prison and speak to to people in there and you know, the, the, one of the things that really struck me, and of course, when you're speaking to these men and we were freely uh, mingling and talking to, to a lot of the, the male prisoners, um, obviously the whole thing with security, with prison guards, um, you know, at the doors, <laughs> um, that they, you know, there's obviously nothing particularly different about them, right? Like qua human beings, okay? So like, you know that they've done something awful or at least they've been caught doing something awful, um, there are obviously people who've done terrible things who are not in prison. And this goes to the cunning point, though, because although, like, for example, the guy who interviewed me exhibited cunning and cleverness and intelligence, and you could feel that some of the prisoners were sort of sizing you up in a certain way. They were sort of thinking, like, is this person, like, naive or not? You know, and you could feel that there is there is a kind of... Um, but you get this in every social situation to some degree, like a site, you know, working people working out who the other person is, is, you know, it's almost like the Hegelian master slave dialectic. Um, but some prisoners, what struck me was some prisoners were just not very good at disguising the fact that they saw the world in a sort of instrumental way. And this actually made them a kind of losers. Like, so the problem, apart from the, 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 the particular crimes that they'd committed, was the fact that they were just actually very bad at being cunning, you know? Like these were these were men who had done awful things for bad motives, many of whom, of course, had unbelievably terrible childhoods, you know, who that knew nothing but violence themselves and, and didn't have any great model of how to live or be, um, often no father figure, whatever, or, you know, some abusive step parent. You know, really, like really the worst sort of starts in life, you know, the kind of people that you would say, well, it's not that much of a surprise that they ended up in prison. Right. But this is also a kind of terribly negative way of thinking. And and the whole model at Grendon is, is partly to do with the kind of redemption, you know, at least in the sense that 
the recognition of one's own capacity to harm is then taken as a starting point for a kind of exploration of why these men maybe did the things that they did, right? So it's a very full-on psychotherapeutic, very unusual thing to do. Normally, prisons are just brutally efficient. You know, the reason why they keep men in prison or people locked up in cells for 23 hours a day is not even to punish them. It's just because it's cheaper. You know, it also punishes them, right? But it's just prisons are run, of course, on market lines. You know, how can we save money? Well, we serve worse food. We just keep people in their cells, it doesn't really, you know, you know what I mean. And and at least Grendon really has this other um, ambition. You know, whatever we think of the therapeutic model, it's there is something very, very interesting and profound going on. And I had some very metaphysically interesting questions with these men. But I, I have to say that, that, yeah, it's the people who are cunning and successful are not the working class or lumpen men in prison who might be trying to be cunning, but actually failed. Um, it's the Boris Johnson of the world and his cronies, as people usually say, who are cunning and successful, um, you know, precisely because they can pull the wool over people's eyes and people want to believe, right? Nobody wants to believe in these men in a high security prison, right? Nobody believes in them at all. And nobody ever did. But people wanted to believe in Boris Johnson and figures like him. Um, Yeah. Well, that's why these two kinds of of people, the person who is stupid about uh, substance and the person who's stupid about instrumental means, they often need each other. The person who wants to believe everybody ought to be trying to make a difference and some people are just being lazy or they just need to be educated. That person is often the sucker for the person who marries cunning to a kind of white collar background. Because since that person you know, doesn't put a whole lot of thought into exactly how or why things happen, uh, they just think in terms of good people, bad people. And their way of determining who's good and bad is very heuristic. It's based on cultural signifiers that don't really track anything because they themselves don't really have a grip on how social structures evolve or how people are constituted or produced. And I think that's a big part of what goes wrong in democratic politics. We have an issue of the week magazine I I subscribe to to get a sense of what's going on in the papers came. I get the American version of the week out here and the cover showed a girl who was at a protest. It's it's a drawing. It's not real, Mm -hmm. but it might have been based on a photograph and her tearing up a photo and, you know, the implication is that she is is uh, one of these pro-Palestinian protesters mm-hmm. who might be anti-Semitic. And, and the headline is, you know, uh, you know, why do these people hate? Mm. Why do they hate? You know, and this idea that you can explain this whole conflict and the way people are behaving in terms of, well, some people just hate. I know. Some people just have hate in their heart. I think about this you know, This time. way of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of just kind of throwing, of just kicking this whole thing away and saying, well, uh, there's nothing complicated here to think about. It's just some people don't have empathy. Some people just hate. Some people are just inside. There's ju- they're just not right. Uh, and this very two-dimensional didactic way of just trying to sort out. But Benjamin, uh, you know what who we, belongs we in have, which box? You know what we have to do with those people who hate. Send them to re-education camps where they can learn empathy. We have yeah, to that, kill that them. That seems to be the way that it goes. <laughs> we have to you know, kill them. <laughs> punish them in some way. You know, put them through something. It doesn't. It doesn't work, of course. So, and 
you know, it's been so difficult to find anybody in the Western press who will talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the way people used to talk about it as a complicated mm -hmm. issue that's difficult to solve, you know, genuinely difficult to solve with people who are looking for a solution on both sides, but are uh, reaching impasses with one another about how to, how to solve the problem, impasses that are difficult for us from outside to resolve. Uh, if, it, if it were really simple and easy to solve, you know, it would be much more straightforward than it has been. Uh, yeah. But instead, we get this good guys, bad guys narrative. And whichever way people do it, you know, whether it's, it's one side or the other side, the good guys, bad guys narrative never gets you very far. But when you think about the world as a bunch of individuals making their own individual choices in a decontextualized way, then, of course, the only way you can really explain a, a decision that's bad is in terms of the person who made it and what's in their heart or what's in their soul or, or what have you. Uh, it, yeah, and I think that the people who are instrumentally not very smart but have good intentions are prone to this kind of thinking because their good intentions often come from from being um, regimented in some way through rituals. It's not necessarily through a kind of philosophical engagement with truth or the good or with any set of, of values or concepts. It's usually through some kind of regimentation. And then they, what they observe is that other people lack the regimentation uh, that they have, but because they don't comprehend their regimentation as regimentation, they don't make the further step of, oh, this person hasn't been regimented and therefore something wrong happened earlier in their life. Mm -hmm. They didn't get the regimentation, which other people typically get. They're under-socialized in some way you know, relative to the majority of people. That They don't reach that level of analysis. And instead, you just get this idea that uh, you know they're just bad. Uh, they just need... And even, even when you do start to get some discussion about your regimentation, the, the idea is that they just need to be educated then. Mm. And this, they just need to be educated is often done in a very flat way because these people don't understand how they themselves acquired these norms of behavior or conduct. So when they think about what education or regimentation entails, they come up with this very propagandistic, didactic, heavy handed stuff, which isn't actually how they themselves learn these values. They didn't learn these values no. by watching this garbage. They learned them from growing up in families where these things were... You know, imbued upon them at a young age and the stuff that they do to try to translate this stuff into something for an adult who grew up in an entirely different environment shows no awareness at all of how people actually acquire values and that's when you've got people who have no theurgic virtue who don't understand you know how a ritual you know, properly socializes a person when you put these people in charge of what rituals people have to endure or go through they just come up with stuff which not only doesn't work it's often counterproductive and a lot of the time now, we just take it for granted that if someone has good intentions or they mm. come from the right demographic group, that whatever rituals they're proposing must be good or must be sound. If someone who you know, uh, is of a particular religious background says, this is how you educate people to not have hatred against my religious group, you just take that uh, you know, as if it must be true. Because to dispute it would be to dispute that person's lived experience. But lived experience doesn't give you theurgic virtue or the capacity to know what constitutes real education. It's not the same thing as expertise in pedagogy. And being able to teach some other subject and you know, being able to teach someone how to read doesn't mean that you know how to teach them you know, the virtues. They're very different skills. And we don't make these distinctions because we're 
we have this utilitarian attitude that everything has to be subsumed under, under one particular uh, currency of value, that all values can be translated into one currency of value. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if somebody has seems to have some value, they must have value in a general sense. Yeah, I agree with There's that. And no it, it, context sensitivity. Yeah. The, the night before I went to the prison, I did a, a sort of free speech society talk at Warwick, um, where we were, we've both uh, been, actually, yeah. at different times. So I was there 97 to 2002, where you could still smoke in the art center, and there was no <laughs> internet, really, and, <laughs> you know, it was great. I think you were there in the golden age of Warwick, well, you know, the I, you period know what? everybody refers no, to all well, the time. Well, I wasn't, actually. I actually arrived too late for that even because it was slightly earlier it was like 93 to 96 or whatever but yes it was still it was still great and there was still lots of very interesting people there and lots of postgrads who are fascinating and so on but i went to the new warwick um and i spoke at this free speech society and i got protested people stormed the lecture before it started and did this little speech about how i was a hateful person because of my views on you know, agenda and feminism and, and so on. And, and they, they, they dropped these little leaflets calling me a turf. And, and of course, they, they could have stayed for the discussion, but they, they didn't. You know, it was very performative. It's always very performative when people come in. And they're understandably nervous as well, right? I, you know, I grant them that. And so they're doing their little performance of this little protest and, you know, handing out these leaflets. And everyone's going like, oh, can you just go away? We want to start the discussion. And they didn't stay. And that's fine. But one of the things that relates to what you say about um, the this thing about education, right? So one of the so we're talking about men and women, and and you know it's a free and open discussion, and I'm trying to you know deal with everything everyone's saying and trying to make points for my book. But one of the sort of persistent kind of attitudes or questions you get is is about sort of that that, that always involves a whole bunch of presuppositions which are just somehow taken for granted. But whatever, it's. So the idea would be something like this. So you have like young a young woman in the in the crowd who's saying, you know, but but women should be free to wear whatever they want, shouldn't they? You know, without risk of being assaulted or, you know, harassed by men. And you know, and then the moment I say something like, Well, I'm interested in the real world, you know, and I say, Well, okay, on the one hand we might say everyone is free to express themselves however they want. And on the other, we might say, well, actually, what makes more sense in particular circumstances, right? Like, how do we indeed, you know, reduce harm, right? In the sense of, we don't want people to perhaps engage in forms of um, dangerous behavior, um, whether male or female, right? So I was saying, well, you know, look, the way to avoid all harm completely is to just never go out and never go to parties, and so on. Okay. But if we do go to these things, if you are a young person and you're drinking and taking drugs and you're at a house party or whatever, like there's going to be an element of risk involved, you know, and that we all have a kind of sense of that. And maybe, maybe we ought to take some responsibility for, for ourselves and for our friends and, and so on. And But the moment you start talking like this, people get very angry with you <laughs> because they think that what you're saying is that you know, the victim is, is being blamed, you know, so that, that if a woman is sort of has an unpleasant sexual encounter, that what you're saying is that it's kind of at least partly her fault, right? And I say, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, clearly it's the person who, who, who did that or whatever, but I'm saying there's lots of very ambiguous situations in that sense anyway. But, you know, let's say there's a clear-cut situation. Um, 
you know, wouldn't we rather that this situation didn't arise in the first place, right? Rather than say women should be able to walk around and wear whatever they want and, you know, it's it's on men not to respond to that sexually. And I say, look, you know, it's, it's a lot to ask of a culture to say, oh, we both want to be sexually, we all want to be sexually liberated all the time and wear whatever we want, but we don't want any negative consequences ever. You know, and I say, like, that's just not realistic. And this woman got very angry with me, <laughs> you know, and she was saying, you're saying that, you know, um, rape is inevitable and that there'll always be like violence and it's women's fault. And I was like, saying, no, not exactly, you know. And but her, and I, was, I said to her, I said, OK, well, what's your solution? Right. Like, how should we deal with this problem? Right. It's clearly a problem. You're very upset about it. You're upset about you know, men hurting women. Absolutely correct. And she just said, education. And I was like, right. I was like, how is that going for our culture? Like people have been saying education since Mary Wollstonecraft and the French Revolution. (laughs) Like it, you know, it, but it's a kind of absolutely knee jerk response. Like, like you say that the only solution to any social problem is just more education. It's bizarre. Yeah, and it takes for granted this idea that we know how to produce in people any given behavior that we want to see. Yeah. Uh, and that's just not the case. I think that uh, you know, that's another instance where you have a kind of which side are you on thinking. You know, Either you're on the side of the victim or you're on the side of the perpetrator. Right, exactly. Somebody has to be responsible for the fact that the crime happens. It can't be thought about in terms of what will a different set of social or cultural practices, what kind of behavior will that in general tend to produce? Uh, it's got to be somebody is is responsible for it being perfect and whole and complete. Mm. Somebody has to take the responsibility for that. And in a way to, to expect that the man takes the responsibility for making the world whole and complete is a kind of conservative impulse. Mm. You know, that's what people used to expect men to do, to take responsibility for making reality make sense and, and making everything whole and complete. Uh, but nobody really can bear the responsibility for creating a society without any violence or antagonism in it whatsoever. That's beyond the capacities of any person to do. And so then it's a question of how do you manage it? And right. once you treat it as a problem to be managed, the person who believes that it is possible to completely eradicate it immediately accuses you of being a defender of the thing that you're trying to manage. Exactly. Anyway, we've reached an hour, so we're going to go and do the B side. So thank you guys so much for listening. The B-Side, by the way, is on Patreon. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.